Tonight on Inside Art, we explore the fascinating story behind one of the most important yet unlikely songs to become a jazz and popular music standard. A song that led to the breaking of the color barrier in popular music and that became a meeting place for two of the most influential cultures in American music history. Body and Soul, an American Bridge, is a film by Robert Philipson about the relationship between African Americans and American Jews during the height of the jazz age. The film looks at Jewish composer Johnny Green's early jazz classic Body and Soul, first sung on Broadway by torch singer Libby Holman, which made its mark on the work of Louis Armstrong, Benny Goodman, Coleman Hawkins, Billie Holiday, and many others. Robert, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Inside Art. What was your interest in the song and the story behind it to begin things? Well, I used to teach comparative literature, and my specialty was black and African literature. I'm Jewish myself, and I was always struck by the parallels and differences between the two minority experiences in America. In fact, I wrote a book on the topic called The Identity Question, Blacks and Jews in Europe and the West, when I began my documentary film work, I was drawn towards music, and I was researching areas of black LGBT identity in the Harlem Renaissance and just kept running up against blues and jazz as sites of cultural reclamation and borrowings and influences. So I thought, why not pursue this interest of comparison of black and Jewish identity in the world of music. And the Great American Songbook was an obvious place to begin because about 80% of the songs that were written between the 20s and the 60s that most jazz musicians turned into classics were written by American Jews. So any song that I chose probably would reveal that array of interrelations between the two minority groups. I chose Body and Soul because it turns out to be the most recorded song in the jazz canon. It does indeed. There's so many people and so many eras in jazz that it kind of goes through. It has a whole, a whole history of itself in jazz that's kind of separate from your film to some degree. But let's look at the song itself because it was kind of controversial in the culture to begin with because of the lyrics. That's correct. It was written in 1930 by Johnny Green, but he was working with two other young Jewish songwriters who wrote the lyrics at the time, Edward Heyman and Robert Sauer. Heyman went on to write lyrics for other songs. Sauer dropped out of the songwriting business after that. But for whatever reason, they wrote a set of lyrics for Body and Soul that was considered to be quite risque for the time period including the lines, my life a hell you're making, and I'm all for you body and soul. Such a frank acknowledgement of sexuality was considered to be too daring for American publishers, and they passed on it when Body and Soul was first making the rounds. It was, in fact, first published and performed in England by a star of the musical stage at that time, Gertrude Lawrence. And Johnny Green himself during this time wasn't particularly a religious Jewish person, or maybe even observant in any way, was he? No, he was raised as a cultural Jew, you might say. He didn't have much contact with practicing Judaism, as he says in an interview which is quoted in the film, except for the high holy days that the synagogue simply did not exist for his parents. Okay, so the song is written for Broadway use primarily, and then how did it find its way in from there to jazz? Uh, well, the song was written to be a pop song, 
It was actually written at the request of Gertrude Lawrence. She had known Johnny Green when she'd come to America to work on musical theater on Broadway. And she requested that he and his collaborators write several songs for her, three of which have since fallen into obscurity, but Body and Soul became this enduring classic. There were a bunch of recordings at the time, both in England and America, when it was apparent that this song had staying power. And it was incorporated into a Broadway show called The Little Show, was the only song that was interpolated from a score by another set of Jewish composers, maybe second tier, but they also wrote a number of classics, Howard Dietz and Arthur Schwartz. And it was in that show that it was turned into a torch song, and it had its pedigree as a torch song. But in the early 1930s, Louis Armstrong was, at the behest of his manager, making jazz classics out of popular music, and he was one of the pioneers in doing that. Body and Soul, being a hit of the day, was one of the ones that he turned his hand to. And, of course, he turned it into a song for the jazz repertoire. I'd like to play a little bit of one of his versions of it. He recorded many over the years, but this is Louis Armstrong doing Body and Soul. My heart is sad and lonely For you dearly Why haven't you seen it I'm all for you body and soul yes. I spend my days in longing bed And wonder why it's me you wronging Oh, I tell you, I mean it I'm all for you, body and soul Louis Armstrong, one of his recordings from the 1940s of Body and Soul. Now, when did Louis first come upon this song and bring it into his band repertoire? His manager introduced him to it in 1930. There were uh, quite a few recordings of Body and Soul that came out in 30 and 31. Then it wasn't recorded again until Benny Goodman revived it in 1935 with the black pianist Teddy Wilson. And that takes the song to a whole new level in breaking the color barrier in American popular music, doesn't it? So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and what led up to that and, and the repercussions there. Benny Goodman was still early in his career and he was consolidating the swing sound which would propel him to fantastic success. But he wasn't there yet. Of course, that sound was coming from black big bands that were already playing, such as Duke Ellington and Count Basie. This was the music that he liked and was drawn to, but it had not spread into the white listening public, and that was going to be his role as things turned out. But he was struggling. He was in New York with his big band in 1935. He was struggling to make a success of it. And he was invited to a party thrown by a fellow jazz musician in New York where he was introduced to a young black pianist by the name of Teddy Wilson. And they jammed together. And it was a revelation. They really swung in a way that 
was unique for the time because it was just the two of them and a drummer that they picked up at the occasion. And uh, Benny Goodman decided that they had to be recorded. So they recorded Body and Soul, amongst a few others. Benny Goodman considered it to be one of his best recordings. And then they went on tour. He went on tour with the big band and had an enormous success. That's when he crossed over and became hugely influential. Early after that success, he was playing in his hometown of Chicago, and some of his fans who knew the recording of Body and Soul asked if he would bring Teddy Wilson out from New York to play with him during his engagement while he was in Chicago. He was initially reluctant to do that because nobody had ever done it before. He felt that this was a really risky move, but he was eventually persuaded to do it. And when he did so, he broke the color barrier in jazz 10 years before Jackie Roberts played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. That's really fascinating. And let's hear a little bit of that from the original recording of Benny Goodman with Teddy Wilson of Body and Soul. was a recording from Benny Goodman. There are other landmark recordings of this wonderful song, not the least of which in jazz history is Coleman Hawkins. I don't think you spend a lot of time in your film on Coleman Hawkins on this, but maybe you can, in your research, share with us the importance of Coleman's version. Yeah, that's what really stamped body and soul into the jazz canon was Coleman Hawkins' 1949 improvisation on the song. It really brought jazz improvisation to a whole new level of elegance and restraint and sophistication. And every tenor saxophonist after Coleman Hawkins had to do his version of the song or her version of the song. And uh, that spread its fame even wider throughout jazz circles. It was taken up and recorded by every major jazz musician, Billie Holiday, Frank Sinatra, Dave Brubeck, Nat King Cole, and most famously in recent annals uh, was the last song that Amy Winehouse recorded with Tony Bennett before her tragic overdose. Yes, indeed. What is this song? I mean, it's just an amazing song that crosses a lot of generations. It continues to have a lot of resonance. But it also, as you had explored in the film, is emblematic of this relationship between African-Americans and Jewish Americans. So how did that kind of shift over time? It's kind of always had a little tension and stress to it. Well, the song, it was emblematic of a typical dynamic in American popular music where you have a song that was 
composed by Jewish composers, oftentimes for Broadway or sometimes as a popular song, that was then taken up by black jazz musicians and in, inducted into the jazz canon. That's the normal dynamic, and that's certainly the path that was followed by Body and Soul. The interesting thing that the film brings out about Body and Soul was that even though it followed this familiar dynamic, it became emblematic of cross-cultural cooperation when it was the song that propelled Benny Goodman to bring Teddy Wilson and later Lionel Hampton into his band, Breaking, Breaking the Color Barrier. But Benny Goodman is also a somewhat controversial figure in areas of possible conflict between African Americans and American Jews because American Jews over the course of time did better as a people during their time in America and came to have positions of control, both cultural and financial, that African Americans had greater difficulty in achieving. So Jews were often managers, nightclub owners, and held a kind of cultural and financial power in the music scene that many blacks saw as exploitative. And you can see that, for example, in the works of Spike Lee. It was less common for Jews to be musicians themselves, although, of course, there were famous exceptions, such as Benny Goodman. And in Goodman's case, he was seen by some severe cultural critics from the black side of things as having ripped off black styles and made them fantastically successful in ways that black musicians at the time couldn't because of cultural segregation. And of course, the most famous example of that would be the controversy around Elvis Presley. But very similar to what was said about Elvis was being said about Benny Goodman at the time. We haven't talked a whole lot about Johnny Green himself. What was his life like? Johnny Green was an unusual figure amongst Jewish composers because he came from an upper-class Jewish background. He didn't come from the hard scrabble streets the way that Irving Berlin did, or even a more cultivated German-Jewish background such as Jerome Kern or Richard Rogers. Johnny Green, his father was a Wall Street stockbroker and grew up in privilege, went to Harvard, but he was also tremendously musically talented, had his first hit with at the age of 18 with the Guy Lombardo Orchestra. And when he told his father, who wanted him to follow his footsteps and go into Wall Street, that he really wanted to make his life as a musician, his father said, there's no bum like a pretty good artist, and I think you're pretty good. <laughs> Backhanded compliment, if there ever was one. <laughs> but he persevered, and he started writing songs, even though he only wrote a handful of songs before he went into the direction of the movies, several of the songs that he wrote became these classics. He also wrote I Cover the Waterfront. And living in New York, he was soon drawn into making music as a musical arranger for the movies and moved out to California where he had a fantastically successful career. He won five Oscars for his work over the course of time, but stopped composing uh, songs, which is something that he regretted, but 
I guess five Oscars is a pretty good consolation prize. Well, tell me a little bit about the making of the film then. Who are some of the people that you talk to and bring in their perspectives? I was fortunate to get an interview with Johnny Green's daughter, Babby Green. There are several academics and cultural commentators who are prominent in this field. Josh Kuhn teaches at USC and at the Annenberg School of Communications, and in this particular area of expertise is the political and cultural aspects of popular music. He's a fascinating character and has done a lot of writing in this area. Jeff Melnick at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, wrote a book on relations between African Americans and American Jews in popular song. And David Lehman of the New School of New York, who is best known as a poet, is also Jewish and loves the Broadway theater and wrote a wonderful book called A Fine Romance, which talks about how Jews dominate the Broadway score in the American musical. You also talk with a couple of jazz luminaries, don't you? Oh, yes. I was also fortunate to get an interview with Richard Davis. Bass player. He's currently teaching at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is where I interviewed him, but he was very active and, and prominent in the New York jazz scene during the 60s. Is that right? Yes. Well, what's great when you watch the film is his reactions when he's listening to the music, to the way people are playing it. I mean, that's worth the price of admission for some. Yeah, yeah, he loved it. He was very open to it. I, I also speak with Carlton Hester, who teaches at the University of California, Santa Cruz, is more an avant-garde musician and takes a more self-avowedly Afrocentric approach to jazz history, which was a perspective I felt I needed, and he provided it. Now, a big part of any film festival is the talk back with the audiences. What have you been learning through other presentations around the country, other film festivals you've taken this to? Uh, people are quite interested in the subject matter. I had an unusual experience. This is about my fifth or sixth film on the film festival circuit. And I just presented at the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival, and there are around 250 people in the audience. And much to my surprise, pretty much everybody stayed for the Q&A afterwards. Usually what happens when the lights go up is at least half the audience files out, but that was not the case. So obviously they were intrigued enough by the subject matter to want to hear more about it. That's terrific. And as a filmmaker, as far as your personal journey through making this, what was it like for you and what do you come out of it with? This is my first documentary in which I did not have a narrator. The, all the stories are told by the interviewees. And that was really both challenging because I had to ask questions that would get people to give me the information that I was looking for, but tremendously rewarding because you have so many voices coming in. So I love that technique, as labor-intensive as it turned out to be. Because you have to really create a narrative out of, uh, there's no thread, that you have to create the thread out of their whole cloth, right? That's correct. They'll say in the credits, written by Robert Phillipson, but it was more like collated by Robert <laughs> That's fascinating. All right, we're going to conclude with a contemporary version of Body and Soul in Spanish by Esperanza Spalding. <laughs> 